This week's podcast is brought to you by Keiko New Energy. Keiko is a German inverter manufacturer that strongly believes in the strength of the U.S. solar market. Its headquarters and production facility are based in San Antonio, Texas, part of a network that includes offices in 16 countries and 850 employees. Keiko makes inverters for every project size, from residential to utility scale. To read up on Keiko's different inverter models or to contact the company, visit keiko-newenergy.com. For the week of March 26th, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. In Washington, D.C., I'm Green Tech Media editor Stephen Lacey. Welcome to the program. In this show, we are taking the investment tax credit head on. Does U.S. solar need it after 2016? The industry is split. Is the current phase out fair? Many don't think so. Our guest, Barry Cinnamon, will join to discuss and uh, perhaps spar a bit with Jigger. In the second part of the program, we'll take a look at why Germany's grid didn't blow up during last week's solar eclipse. And we'll also talk about Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's plan to stop EPA carbon regulations in a uh, historically unique way. Also in Washington, D.C., here to track people like Mitch McConnell so you don't have to, is my co-host, Catherine Hamilton. She's a partner with 38 North Solutions. Hey there. Hey, boy, do I have the lucky job. <laughs> Speaking of Senator McConnell, do you actually know him? I feel like you know everybody in Congress. No, I don't know him. <laughs> well, Jigger Shaw is in New York. He's also our co-host. He's the kind of guy who seems to know everybody as well. How are you, Jigger? I'm doing well. You know, funny enough, I met the guy who manages Mitch McConnell's money. In what yeah. way? Like his personal wealth, like, you know, his S&P 500 investments and all that stuff. And, you know, so it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's one of those weird things where uh, you do meet random people all the time. So did- is, he di- is he divesting, Jigger? Yeah. <laughs> I, I cannot say. This guy wouldn't tell me. But, um, but he's like, you know, one of those boutique money managers. And he says he does really well for Mitch's money. So that's good. Well, did you convince him to invest in clean tech stocks? If you couldn't invest in the di- <laughs> divest, at least hand him a copy of your book. So the funny thing is, this he, this guy's a good friend of mine. He's actually invested twenty million dollars of his own money in solar projects. So, for what it's worth, we frequently discuss the federal investment tax credit on this podcast. The ITC, of course, was a catalyst for solar's sixteen hundred percent growth in the last seven years. And with an expiration coming at the end of twenty sixteen, it has caused a lot of debate about subsidies and the solar industry's preparedness for a post tax credit future. Today, we take that debate head on with our guest, Barry Cinnamon. Barry has a long history in the solar industry. He oversaw 10,000 solar installations at Akina and Westinghouse Solar, and he now runs Cinnamon Solar, a residential contractor in San Jose. He is also host of The Energy Show, a weekly radio program that airs on KLIV Radio and is uh, released as a podcast at Renewable Energy World each week. In fact, I think Barry just got back from recording his show 15 minutes before we connected. Barry, welcome to the Energy Gang. Thanks for bouncing from one show to the other. Hey, thanks, Stephen, and good talking to you, Catherine and Jigger. I'm looking forward to it. This is a really important topic for the industry. Indeed. And so one of my favorite activities after I publish a story or one of our writers publishes a story is to watch the comment section uh, at Green Tech Media and watch the debate between you and Jigger. And so we decided... Why keep this in the comments section? Let's invite Barry on the show to talk about the investment tax credit and talk about the uh, health of the solar industry that you've been involved in for so many years. 
Jigger, of course, believes that the solar industry will still be standing and healthy and perhaps stronger if the tax credit goes away. And uh, you do not necessarily believe that. And I, and I want to hear from you on this. So you think the long tail of solar, the smaller and mid-sized contractors that make up the other half of the industry, really, uh, you know, we have a few very large solar services firms that make up one half of the industry, and then this long tail that makes up the other half, you think that they're going to suffer in a big way if the investment tax credit expires. Explain. Well, there's no doubt in my mind that that they're going to suffer, and a lot are going to, a lot are going to go out of business. And I have to remember that there are two sections of the tax code. There's the commercial section 48, and there's the residential section 25. And at the end of 2016, although the commercial steps down from 30 percent to 10 percent, plus you get about a 20 percent uh, pre- present value of makers, the residential goes to zero. And when residential goes to zero, that's going to clobber the small installer um, long tail industry. And we've got a lot at stake for, for all those jobs. So, um, I, you know, when I'm debating Jigger, I'm sticking up for that long tail of the little guys for whom Section 25 is what's, what's helped them get into business. And if it goes away, it's going to put them out of business. And so, Jigger, you actually don't quite – you don't really disagree with that, right? I mean, you think that – a lot of the smaller installers will, in fact, go out of business, but that you might see, you know, a few hundred installers, some of the best installers uh, still stay in business and continue dropping their costs. Let, let's get your opposing view. What do you, how do you respond to what Barry's scenario is? Well, the good thing is, is that we don't have to speculate about this. It's already happened in Germany when they drastically reduced the feed-in tariff and in the UK when they drastically reduced the performance-based incentive. And in both markets, magically, the best installers stayed in business and the volumes basically stayed up. And in and the folks who basically never knew how to actually build systems efficiently went out of business and life went on, right? And so like it's not I'm not disagreeing with Barry at all. I think there's going to be huge carnage in the industry. And I think of the 7,000 solar installers in the US today, according to the Solar Foundation, 90% of them will probably go out of business. But the 700 that are left is more than enough to meet the volume requirements of the solar industry. Well, you know, it's, it's a, Germany is not going to be the same as the U.S. And in the German market, you can operate a more scalable business. I think it's really important to look at the solar industry in the U.S. like the HVAC industry. And if you look at the HVAC industry, and these are you know, small and medium-sized companies putting air conditioning in, repairing systems, there's a hundred, over 100,000 companies doing HVAC contracting, very similar to work, work to solar. They in, employ over half a, a million people. And there are no large companies. The HVAC industry is extremely fragmented, lots and lots of small companies. That's the way the solar industry will evolve, just like plumbing and and the electrical industry. And I can't possibly see how 500 companies can serve the needs of the entire country's need for rooftop solar. Well, today, there's 10 companies who basically dominate the solar industry. I'm not disagreeing with you, but having two companies per congressional district, I think, is okay in the United States. I, I just think that, you know, I think we have to look at this a much in a much broader way, which is that we are over-subsidizing solar today. There is no reason whatsoever that a PPA price should be 25% less than what people are currently paying. Solar should not be cheaper than what people are currently paying. They should get a 1% to 5% savings just like they do in retail energy 
contracts in deregulated states. The reason why we're giving this stuff away is because we're oversubsidizing it in several states like California and Hawaii and other places. And then when you think about the number of investors who are cash flow investors, the vast majority of baby boomers who actually want to invest in solar can't because of the passive active loss rule. So they can't actually take the tax credits. And so you're basically left with Goldman Sachs, U.S. Bank, Google, and 10 other companies who basically have to finance all of the solar projects. I don't know why you would want to be captured by those 13 companies and why you wouldn't want to democratize the finance industry. You you know, one of our markers for a competitive market is to see 10% savings in the first year of the investment uh, over what customers are paying now. So you don't think that that's an appropriate benchmark, Jigger? When I was at Sun Edison, we never gave somebody 10% savings, ever. Walgreens, Whole Foods, Staples, Walmart, Costco, Macy's, none of them got that. What I pitched them, and I think where the solar industry needs to go back to, is this is a hedge on future electricity price increases. If I lock you in at today's rates for the next 20 years, is that value creating for you? Yes, because the electric utility industry has been averaging 3 to 4% rate increases, which is about two to three times higher than inflation per year since the year 2000. And so I think for a lot of people, particularly people like churches and schools and others whose budgets aren't going up by 3 to 4% a year, the electricity is starting to eat into their core programming, and we can actually help solve that for them. You know, I think, um, Jigger, we're, we're hitting on a core of the discussion, which is there are two different markets that we're talking about. And your experiences with Walmart, Walmart and other institutions and companies is very, very different than my experience over the past 15 years sitting at a dining room table with a family looking at solar. And they're, they're not, I'm not even going to get a meeting with them if I can give them a 2 or 3% um, increase in improvement. They want to see a 5 to 10-year payback. Or you know, a, 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 at least a ten percent improvement. And I watched in California and other states. As soon as we got into the range of a seven-year simple payback, which is the math somebody can do with their calculator, the, the adoption really picked up. And if you go back to a ten or fifteen-year or a twenty-year payback, which is in twenty years, that's five percent. Um, sales are going to stop. There's no doubt about it because that's happened in every jurisdiction I've been in. Well, look, I mean, I, I, I I'm not sure that the numbers are the are quite the same thing. In California, you're talking about people who generally that we're targeting are paying 18 to 22 cents a kilowatt hour for their power. Um, you know, even if we don't, if we don't give away the solar for free, it is a five to 10 year payback. And so I, I don't, I don't actually think that it's a problem. Um, and the no money down stuff, we're getting to very low interest rates. I mean, when you look at dividend solar or SunGage or some of these other guys, you know, when you're forcing the customer to take the tax credit, you know, you're actually getting to cost a capital of six, 7%. I just think that where we are as an industry, you know, I think that, you know, I was probably the only person in 2008 that was predicting that we'd be at sub $2 watt installation costs in 2008. I think the solar industry surprises most everyone out there. I think that the folks who are selling solar for four bucks a rut right now should go out of business. You know, I think when you look at the best in class people in the residential solar industry today, they're at 250 a watt. And when you look at the best in class people in commercial at 100 kilowatts, they're at about 215 a watt. And then the best in class in the utility scale side is about $1.60 a watt in the US. And I just think that for folks who are you know, 50 cents a watt more expensive than that, they should start look, you know, looking for new work at the end of 2016. Jigger, Jigger, I don't know where you're getting those numbers from, because if I look at the averages that were pulled together by, um, by NREL and by uh, Lawrence Berkeley Lab, it's more like 350 to $4 a watt. And I know if I go and buy the equipment 
from a distributor and I pay sales tax and freight, my equipment cost alone are two dollars a watt. So I'd love to get can, more insight from you. I can help you with that, you. Barry. Okay. How, how? <laughs> Look, I mean, like, I mean, help, so the, well, I want you to help everybody. Help everybody with getting down to two and a half dollars a watt. But if the equipment is, you know, this is high quality equipment. It's going to last. It's monitored. The equipment's two dollars a watt. So no, you can't like, like, stay in business at two fifty. If you look at, like, I mean, I'm an active investor in solar projects. The numbers I've quoted you are ones that I'm actually paying for, for projects. And when you look at, you know, like equipment for residential solar, um, Mitsubishi, you know, Hyundai Mitsubishi is providing kits at around $1.30 a watt for their equipment kits. And that includes includes SolarEdge DC optimizers. Um, so, I mean, I just think that for whatever reason – you know, the HVAC industry is a good point that you brought up, Barry. Like the HVAC industry basically has three layers of 20% markups on equipment. The solar industry can't afford that. We've got to figure out a way to get better. But I, I think the, the, broader, the broader point that I'm making is that I think that this notion that we want to stay tied to the 30% tax credit, which individual investors can't invest in and can't utilize because of the passive active loss rules, which, which the U.S. Congress is never going to change, and you know, like not allowing foreign money, like Chinese, Korean, and Saudi money that really wants 5% returns. I mean, they're so desperate for U.S. dollar infrastructure investments that they're bidding really low prices now because they want these access to cash flows, but they can't get them because of the tax credits. So Jigger and Barry, what would be your alternative then? Um, I was looking at the Stanford uh, Steyer Taylor Center working paper um, where they where they float this gradual phase out. So you would go in 2017 to 20 percent, and then down to 10 percent, and then zero by 2025. Is that the kind of thing you would look for, Barry, or is there some alternative? What What would you think is it would be um, a good outcome for the ITC? I think what's important is to figure out what our goals are. And if our goals are to see the industry grow rapidly and overcome the problems we have with climate change, then a phase down maybe a slow phase down may be okay. But the cliff that we're looking at for residential on, on January first, twenty seventeen, is I mean, heck, we're gonna spend more money uh, on states on unemployment than we would uh, on unemployment insurance for, for installers who lost their job than we would on the tax credit. So I think we have to look at it market segment by market segment and not just from a global basis. Because I do, I agree completely with Jigger that there are sources of money that are, that are available by changing some of the other regulations that can be used. But that's not going to benefit the average residential homeowner who really just wants to cut that initial price. They want to own the system on their roof. Well, I well, will tell you, Congress is not getting that message at all. I don't think. I don't think they're hearing that that exact figure that that we'd be spending more on unemployment insurance. They're not hearing from people who are benefiting from solar. They're not hearing from the people who are installing it. They're hearing from the bigger companies who can afford lobbyists or can, who can afford to be part of a trade association. Um, but I think those messages are, are we're really still desperately in need of those to, to get to every single member of Congress. That's such a fantastic point, Catherine, and something I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you about who is active in these negotiations because I was talking to Barry and he said, yeah, the smaller installers just aren't making it to Capitol Hill and aren't getting their voices heard. And so, uh, Catherine, over to you first. How do they get uh, the ear of lawmakers? How do they get more active within the trade associations? I mean, what, in your opinion, will get those voices heard in D.C.? 
Yeah, I mean, it's tricky because those guys are out there working every day. It's hard to get them a, a ticket to D.C. to come and talk to somebody. But it's much more effective to have somebody in work clothing come in and say, I have a job and it's in the solar industry and I don't want to I don't want you to take it away from me um, than to have somebody in a suit, um, you know, with a nice little uh, pocket handkerchief go in and talk to them. Um, I think it's not hard to get in and see someone. If you're a constituent, you can go in and see your member of Congress. I think people should go into their district offices at least. That is something they can do is find the office, you know, where they live and where they vote and talk to someone there and figure out, you know, how do I get this message? But you're right. I mean, it's really hard for people to free themselves up to get to Washington, but I think it's really important that people do. Everyone knows yeah, that the yeah. lobbyists in the solar industry have the best pocket handkerchiefs. <laughs> <laughs> so, Catherine, you, you hit on a really good concept, and uh, this is something that SIA is actually starting to work on in conjunction with the local state chapters. It's Even if we were to provide every residential solar installer with a pocket handkerchief, they're still not going to get on a plane and go to D.C., right. but they can <laughs> meet with their district offices, and SIA and the local state chapters are beginning to coordinate meetings at the local office where local jobs are very important and this is where they can go so that's something that our industry can do and I I strongly urge every installer who's listening to this podcast to contact SIA or their local state chapter and and set up those local meetings at the district office I mean we're coming up on the spring break they'll be there they'll be there uh, again later in the year and in 2016 so this is this is the way the small guys can lobby it's at the local office, and it will be effective. Yeah, absolutely. And if they can get their member out to see a site, out to see them install something or see where equipment is manufactured or anything that shows that this is a real industry, these that is really, really helpful, too, because then it demystifies it a little bit. It makes it seem not so much this kind of pie-in-the-sky, dreamy unicorn thing, but the, this is really something that can help people. And, but I also think that it's important, you know, Barry, I think you're using some sort of moral arguments as well around climate change and climate change goals, et cetera. And I think that, you know, part of this is figuring out what we are trying to, you know, like sort of lobby for. I think if we're looking at this as an industrial industry play, which is I think what the wind guys have largely done and I think the solar guys have largely done, that's a negotiation around numbers. And it's basically, can we get a three-year phase down? Can we get a 10-year phase down? I definitely think this Dyer Center stuff was, it's, it's not possible. There's no way you're going to get a 10-year phase down. What the yeah, wind guys were offered were a, was a two-year phase down, I think. Um right a three-year phase down. And so I think that's what's on the table. Um, but I think if you want to make the moral case, then it's more than installers. Then all of the folks who are in the environmental movement or who just are, frankly, just listeners to the podcast who really believe strongly in this movement have to go to their local congressional districts and say, look, this is a, a moral argument for me. I think the U.S. has to lead on climate change issues. And I think the tax credit extension is part of that. Um, but I don't think that folks are getting flooded with the moral message right now. Well, and honestly, great. different messages are going to work for different people. I mean, there are a lot of people who are not going to listen to that argument, Jigger, but they'll listen to the sort of the Debbie Dooley Tea Party argument, which is like, I am an American. I want a choice of where I get my energy. I don't want to have to pay all my money to my utility. 
It's, it's great when the moral argument uh, is exactly in phase with the economic argument. And that's what we've got in this situation. We deploy more solar. We find a cost-effective way to do it. It's going to benefit us all. There's a fundamental misconception that, that we have, which is we're viewing the, the residential solar industry like a, like a manufacturing industry or anything else where, where scale matters. And when I mentioned the statistic about the HVAC industry, it's really relevant. Somebody mentioned to the you know, pointed that out to me in 2001 when I started to scale up my business. Here's the reality. There are no economies of scale with larger residential solar installation companies. In other words, the bigger you get, the less efficiently you operate and the more money you lose. And I've, I've looked at the numbers from, from every single scaling residential public company and they're all the same the bigger they get the more territories they cover the faster they do installations actually the more money they lose rather than the, the more profitable they get so I economically we're better off with, 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 with smaller companies barry i completely agree with you and all of the systems that i'm buying right now are from small installers I, I, I don't buy from the big guys, and the smaller guys, I think, are way more efficient. I've said this for years, that the most efficient solar company on the installer side is husband-wife team, their kids an engineer, and they basically have two crews. That's what I do, except my kids don't want to work on the roof anymore, but my wife does all the paperwork, <laughs> and I got two crews and two trucks, and we're local, and I believe we're as, about as efficient as we can get. So when we're looking at deploying solar cost effectively, that means find an efficient way to do it, and that's the local installer. So Jigger, maybe we agree a lot more than we think. We just have to find the formula that your $2.5 watt installed company is using and get that information out to the other 6,000 residential installers out there. Well, the, the, the formula comes from financing. Honestly, the biggest problem with installers that I meet with is they're desperately trying to get their customers to pay cash. And they should be leading with a financed offer. So what happens is, is that most small installers who have higher costs than that, they lose most of their sales because they're desperately trying to get all of their customers to pay cash first, as opposed to leading with the financed offer and then letting their customers say, you know what, I don't want to pay the finance charges. I'd rather just pay cash. So my wife would divorce me if I if I dumped on on her desk all the paperwork I used to have to deal with for my finance deals. And basically I have no paperwork for a cash deal. So when when you're talking about a two and a half dollar watt system, there's usually a lot of documentation for the finance systems and that 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 money to handle that paperwork and actually pull the financing together has got to come from somewhere and it's not coming out of the two and a half dollars a watt, I don't believe. So Catherine over the next year or so, this is going to get extraordinarily vicious. I mean, you've got Americans for Prosperity, the Heritage Foundation, very large, well-financed conservative groups that are going to be laser light. They're going to have a laser-like focus on the investment tax credit. Do you think that the jobs issue is the best way to counter that? Because clearly the economics issue is not working. I mean, it might be working locally, but these organizations will lie through their teeth about the economics of solar, even when the facts uh, counter what they're claiming. And I'm just wondering, like, the, the economic argument isn't going to be enough to counter the BS that these organizations are throwing out over the next couple of years. What, in your opinion, is the most effective way to push on this issue? Yeah, so be, since the credit doesn't expire till the end of 2016, I don't – I think right now – what the main thrust should be is education. And um, as Barry said, 
getting the trade association and anybody else just engaged in really showing that there are jobs, but also explaining how the tax credit works and who benefits from it so that it doesn't seem like some subsidy or it seem like it's going to a cylindra, like some kind of a shell of a business, that these are that there's a connection and this is how it works. And it really is cost effective government public policy. And um, I think that's what's going to need to happen. I think um, you have to find the champions. You got to find champions on both sides of the aisle. Um, make sure that the president holds firm. You know, this is the first time the president had put the ITC, permanent ITC proposal into his budget request. Um, and the folks at the White House, I think, were pretty jazzed about that, that that, that was included. Um, so you'll have the president on the right side. The issue is to keep educating Congress so that somehow something doesn't slip into a bill inadvertently. The politics of this is something that Ron Resch is going to do exactly the way Catherine expect, uh, explained. I mean, he's going to be like, we need the tax credit. We're going to lose 100,000 jobs if this doesn't happen. This is going to have to get extended. All those things are going to get done. But I guarantee you at the end of the day, he's going to be asked to cut a deal. And the question really is for the businesses out there, when Ron cuts that deal, are you prepared for whatever the deal will bring. And that's that's the reason why I've been so vocal on this issue is I think there's a lot of solar installers with their head in the sand thinking, oh, this is going to get extended. I don't have to prepare my business for the draconian steps that are going to be taken in 2017. I think Roan's going to say all the right things, but when he cuts that deal, you know, you have to be prepared for it. So Barry, how are you preparing as a small business owner for a deal like that or for a full-on expiration slash phase down? That there's, there's really no preparation that a small installer can do other than strive to be as efficient as possible every single day. And so that's what I'm doing as an installer. I'm trying to uh, streamline my procedures. I've got um, free software tools that I use so that I can uh, sell my job more effectively. I can, I can pretty much put a proposal together without even going to the house and um, just just running efficiently. And that's all we can do. And, and I've seen these, these um, cliffs happen before. The cliffs are very good for sales until you get to the cliff. And then what's the only preparation you can do is just uh, prepare to lay people off on, at the beginning of 2017. It's a reality. But you're better, Barry, than other people. I can guarantee you a lot of in small installers I talk to, for instance, have their own in-house engineering which is ridiculous. They're basically not doing enough systems to actually warrant having their own in-house engineering. Use Green Lancer, use other services, and you know outsource that function. A lot of folks are not using the proposal software you're talking about. They're basically relying on Sunrun's proposal software or somebody else's that they're getting for free. A lot of folks aren't doing supply chain management software. Um, and so a lot of folks basically manage their books by using their checking account as, as opposed to knowing exactly how much inventory they have, et cetera. So I mean, I think you're definitely one of the better ones, Barry. I mean, like, I don't think everyone's doing the same thing. Well, it's it's not hard to be one of the better ones. QuickBooks is cheap. Um, I buy through a distributor so that I don't need any warehouse manager, supply chain management, purchasing. I just place a purchase order at night once the permit goes through. I went from having a room full of engineers who were either never enough engineers to handle the peak of the job or always too many when things slow down. And now I just completely outsource that engineering. And the I avoid using proposal tools that lead me down a particular path of financing because then I can't operate the business the way I want. So those tools are going to get out there. The trick is to make sure that the cost of those tools 
is low enough so that you're not spending more on tools than you're saving on efficiency. Well, good advice from a small business owner and a solar industry veteran. This was a really great conversation. Appreciate you being on the show. It is Barry Cinnamon. He is the CEO of Cinnamon Solar. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, team, over there. Thanks, Barry. Thanks. This week's Energy Gang sponsor is Keiko New Energy, a top global inverter manufacturer for solar, storage, and other distributed energy systems. Keiko has shipped more than 7 gigawatts of products since 1999. The company believes deeply in the solar industry and in the need for more renewables. But its philosophy goes well beyond that. Here's what Ralph Hoffman, Keiko's CEO, writes about the way he runs his company. Quote, factors such as the health of all our employees, team spirit, fairness, open communication, trust, self-confidence, and responsibility are very important to us. We are aware of our responsibility to each other and to our locations and to each employee. That sounds like a place I'd want to work. We can't guarantee you a job at Keiko, but the company can guarantee a reliable product for all your solar project needs. For more information, visit keiko-newenergy.com. Last week, solar-heavy European grids underwent a stress test in the form of a solar eclipse. Last Friday morning, as the moon moved its way across the sun, Europe lost 17 gigawatts of solar capacity over the course of about an hour, and in over another hour added 25 gigawatts of power output to the grid. Germany alone lost and gained 15 gigawatts of power during the eclipse. So did the grid implode? Did Europe plunge into chaos? Of course not. Proper grid planning allowed operators to fill in the gap with natural gas, nuclear, hydropower, coal, biogas, and biomass. Catherine, hardly unexpected for those who understand the capabilities of the power sector and its ability to respond to events like this. Does this prove anything to the masses or to the skeptics who have been calling solar a threat to the grid for a while now? Well, I think if you ask that question to PJM, they would say, of course we could do that because they could. They're super sophisticated. And I think most of the most of our system operators in this country and operation centers in utilities are very sophisticated and they could manage it as long as they have a lot of flexible resources at their disposal. And uh, interestingly, those were co- considered alternative sources, coal and natural gas, when they, when they brought those online in Europe. But um, I think what it tells you is that it's really helpful to get some flexible resources that can be distributed generation, it can be demand response, it could be efficiency. All of those can play into making sure that your grid is able to withstand any kind of situation like this. Yeah, and it it does prove one other thing, which is we are using a good amount of fossil fuels to back up solar variations. Uh, That does not have to be the case, but it is the case largely. Does it also help skeptics jigger by showing that fossil fuels enable help enable solar at times like this? Well, yeah. I mean, I don't know that it's skeptics as much as it's, um, you know, I think that we need to get to a new grid operations model. Um, And the Germans, frankly, haven't been at the forefront of demand response, load control, uh, battery storage, etc. I think they're catching up uh, now. But really, the U.S. markets, with the PJM being in the lead, has really been the leader on demand reduction. And I think that what we're talking about moving to is going away from a supply-only environment. Today, if demand goes up because it's a hot summer day and you got a lot of air conditioning, then 
you basically just bring on more capacity. In the future, you're going to be able to have the same level of dexterity on the demand side that you currently enjoy on the supply side. So will we see a fundamentally different reaction to this five years from now, Catherine? When, this, when another solar eclipse happens, say it hits the U.S. We did have one in 2014, but it was later in the day. We saw a pretty sizable drop-off in solar power. But five years from now, we're going to have a hell of a lot more solar. We're going to have a lot more storage, certainly a more sophisticated demand response and building intelligence market. Um, how much different will this be compared to what we saw in Germany, where it was a supply response? Um, well, they also lowered demand. They 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 uh, curtailed four aluminum plants. So they did do both sides. And, and some of the demand drop was from people just leaving buildings and going to watch the eclipse. Going too. with their dark glasses <laughs> to look at the sky. They all look like they were in a 3D movie. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that what they did was all related to planning. And I think in five years, our planning exercises will be even more sophisticated. And then there will be um, much more two-way communication or multi, multi-way communication. So, yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's going to make um, – in five years, it'll just be even easier to do. So I just don't think that's a huge – I don't think having a solar eclipse is a huge argument for not doing solar. Yeah, right. Well, and more and more importantly, I mean I just think that that this keeps coming up, right? So for a long time, people were saying, well, if solar gets above a certain amount, we're going to have mass problems with the grid because it was made to be one directional, not two directional. There were all sorts of things happening, and Germany proved once again that you know that those doomsayers have not a leg to stand on. But uh, but now, I mean, the utilities, EPRI, everybody's saying multidirectional is the way it's going to go. So I don't think anybody's making very many people are making that same. You know, one-sided argument. Well, anyway. now that we've debunked it, but in 2007 <laughs> and 8 and 9, they were like, no, the sky is going to fall. And then, of course, you know, for a few months ago, they're basically now saying that the eclipse was going to do this. Of course, we went through that just fine. And next week, it'll be something else. And, you know, we just keep having to debunk these folks. I am not suggesting that Utility 1.0 was built to actually handle all these variable resources in the form of renewables in a distributed fashion. But the notion that it that utility 1.0 infrastructure is so flimsy that it can't be jerry-rigged to figure out how to accommodate these distributed generation resources is foolish. That was one of the biggest takeaways for me. And many of the skeptics here in the U.S. say that integration costs are too high, the grid is too inflexible to handle solar and other variable resources. And that's just complete hogwash. And Germany and Europe proved that that's hogwash, even with extraordinarily high PV capacity. So, well, let's uh, loop on back to Washington now. The fight over EPA's proposed carbon regulations is getting very interesting. In early March, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell kicked off his plan to stop the regulations with an op-ed calling for state leaders to stop developing compliance plans. If you remember, EPA's proposal is, uh, is going to require states to meet specific carbon reduction levels pretty much any way they want in order to get a 30% national reduction in CO2 by 2030. So these states have complete flexibility in how they meet the targets. But if they don't set up their own plans, the federal government is going to have to do it for them, which is, of course, uh, more costly, and states just don't want that. The op-ed was was just the opening strike in Senator McConnell's campaign. His office later sent a letter 
a very detailed letter to governors in all 50 states arguing why they should delay compliance until the courts decide the legality of the regulations. So why take that risk if, you know, if the, the EPA regulations do go forward and the federal government ends up taking over state plans? Well, McConnell had something else up his sleeve, uh, a guy named Larry Tribe a well-respected Harvard constitutional law professor who once taught President Obama and who worked at the Justice Department. So Tribe has argued that the plan unconstitutionally meddles in state affairs, takes private property from industry, and goes around Congress. Uh, Senator McConnell believes that Tribe can, can help take down the rules. These arguments will help take down the rules in the courts. And, and uh, so he's trying to delay until that happens. Experts have called McConnell's state lobbying and legal campaign, quote, clever, sophisticated, and unusual. But will it actually work? Catherine, uh, there are a couple elements to this. The delay that McConnell is trying to cause and the legal arguments themselves. First on the delay, how worried are advocates that McConnell's lobbying will hold up state planning when we have seen a lot of movements from uh, state lawmakers or state officials that are pretty skeptical of the plan? Well, I think that the tagline is, if you won't sip, you'll get fipped, which is if you don't do a state implementation plan, you're going to be stuck with your federal implementation (laughs) plan. It's called a FIP. Wait, that's really a thing? I've never heard that. If you don't sip, you'll get fipped. So there are five states, Alabama, Indiana, Oklahoma, South Carolina, and Wyoming, who are suing, um, and they they filed a lawsuit in August of 2014. Fifteen governors have come out and think that this clean power plan is illegal. So those are the people who are going to be listening to McConnell and agreeing with him and saying, yes, he's on our side. But, I mean, the the, the thing is, this is the law. I mean, the the Clean Air Act is the law. This particular provision has been held. I mean, CO2 has been found to be a pollutant and upheld by the Supreme Court. The EPA is just doing its job. It hadn't done its job in a long time because the the former administration was not allowing it to. But they're actually providing a huge amount of flexibility. There's still going to be 30% of coal generation even after all of this is put into place. And, and they're taking an approach of the best system for emissions reduction. So it, you're really allowed to look at a system approach, which is really going to be the best thing for states. And the rule isn't even final yet. It's not going to be final until probably September or maybe even later if it stip- if it slips. But, I mean, it's if they don't listen to it, it, it's, it seems foolish to not at least start thinking. And I think probably states are thinking ahead and trying to figure out what are we going to do. Well, you know, even we don't McConnell's home sick. state of Kentucky, I mean, officials there are trying to develop a plan. I think they have to reduce emissions 18 percent. I think that's the number I saw. But they're working on crafting a plan. And according to EPA figures, you know, they're nearly halfway there when you look at the 2005 benchmark. So this is not an extraordinarily hard task for some of the states that are more dependent on coal and other fossil fuels. No, EPA made this easy for everybody. I mean, in fact, when you look at the goals that they set, they basically took the reports from the community that looked at which of the aging coal plants are going to be shut down and then just put that into their targets for everybody. And so the folks who have really high targets just happen to have a lot of coal plants that are ready to be at the end of life. So I don't actually think making these plans are going to be very difficult. The real question is how many of these states view this as 
economic development opportunities and how many of these states view this as government regulation. And I think that's where you're seeing the party lines drawn. Um, but one thing I just wanted to you know, highlight is that Politico had a great article from Jody Freeman, um, who's a Harvard law professor and served as, as the White House counsel for energy and climate change in 2009-2010, who basically completely debunked, you know, tribes' legal arguments. And so I don't think that the legal arguments are uh, as much, you know, um, of a story as much as tribe getting paid by Peabody Cole to figure out a way to, you know, make a lot of money for himself. Yeah. And she wrote that piece with Richard Lazarus, also of Harvard. They wrote a longer piece over at the Harvard website and then published a, a shorter piece over at Politico. And, and they did point out the fact that uh, Larry Tribe has been working for fossil fuel companies, but they also said that he's one of the most respected constitutional uh, law experts in the country and so that we shouldn't just dismiss his arguments out of hand. Now, there are some quotes here that I thought were very interesting from their piece. And they said, were Professor Tribe's name not attached to those arguments, no one would take them seriously. Nothing in the plan requires the states to specifically kill coal plants or make decisions about their energy mix. The federal government is not making that decision. So they have this, they have total flexibility. So uh, Freeman and Lazarus retort with this. The clear implication of tribes' novel view of the Constitution is that the coal industry and the power plants that burn their coal possess an absolute constitutional property right to continue to emit greenhouse gases in perpetuity. No Supreme Court opinion has ever announced such a preposterously extreme position proposition of constitutional law. If tribe were right, government could never regulate newly discovered air or water pollution or other new harms from existing industrial facilities, no matter how dangerous to public health and welfare, as long as the impacts are incremental and cumulative. So pretty bold stuff there. Yeah, that I, I read that. That was a great piece. And and uh, they made a great point that there should be there is no expectation of profit from um, harming public health and welfare, especially when there's been a pollutant that is that has been determined to be such as CO2 is um, and upheld by the Supreme Court. Well, what kind of headache will this cause the federal government if enough states decide not to implement their own plans? I mean, this is going to be pretty costly for the feds if they have to do that. Yeah, and it'll take them a while to pull it together. But you know what? They'll do it. I mean, that's what they're working on now is the FIPS. So, you know, for those the FIPS, for those of those who won't do a SIP. <laughs> you must acquit. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that's exactly if, right. If the FIP don't fit, you must acquit. Oh, so, 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 look, I, I, you know, help me through the, the process here, right? It, when If they don't develop these plans or, or if the federal government is forced to develop more of these FIPS, before Obama leaves office, does that delay it enough to push it into next term territory so that potentially a Republican president could override the program? Is that a possibility here? I mean, they can't override the law. So the law well, is still the program in itself. effect. Right. Yeah, I mean, they could they could try to strangle it and not give it any funding. But then you're stuck with uh, you know the the U.S. government and being and states being in noncompliance with the law. So I'm I'm not sure how it how that all shakes out. I'm not a lawyer. Well, but I do think it's important to look at history a little bit. I think when you look at what Carol Browner did under the Clinton administration, it was really bold and pretty extraordinary. And uh, the electric utility companies spent gargantuan sums of money to help elect George W. Bush. And as soon as he came into office, he worked hard to dismantle everything that Carol Browner worked for, including all the lawsuits 
against the utility companies who are burning coal. Um, and so it is something that's on the table that that if you know a new administration comes in that is anti these rules, they can actually spend the next four years um, you know taking the teeth out of them and unwinding them. And so I think to your point, Jigger, that you made earlier, um, I think getting more states to understand that this is an economic development opportunity is going to be really important over the next couple of years. Well, this McConnell strategy yep. is quite fascinating. So we'll watch how it plays out among governors and state leaders and in the courts as well. Uh, so we are going to wrap up now, folks. Time to tell you something you do not know. And Catherine, what is your story? Honestly, you called on me again first. Jigger and I are like, Jigger, I hope you're keeping tabs here. You know um, what? <laughs> I, it just, it's just about based on what I feel. I'm not running a tally here. You guys are the ones who are running a tally, breathing down my neck. Just let me pick on who I want. Okay. All right. Fine. All right. You can pick on me. All right. So here's something is very interesting. I've got my family who for many, many years had no idea what I did because they're, they do things that are completely unrelated to energy, except that now my brother is an energy manager and an ancient philosophy professor at the same time. But my mother sent me today um, something that she read about Solarize South Carolina. So there's a new program in South Carolina to help South Carolinians go solar and save on electricity costs. Um, it's called SolarizeSC.org. It's being run by a nonprofit. It's so interesting to me that the South is really starting to come along. Uh, I talked to some folks um, this week from the Southern Environmental Law Center and some and you know to to listen to what. You know, North Carolina has been really bullish and it's kind of pushing on the states around it. Georgia's coming around. I'm I'm loving this. I'm loving seeing the South really start. Now I just need to get Virginia in gear. Jigger, what kind of story do you have this week? So I've been, you know, sort of watching a lot of the global renewable energy stories. And one of the things caught my eye, which is that so since the beginning of 2015, Costa Rica has been 100 percent renewable energy. Um, mostly hydro and geothermal, but pretty damn cool that they've actually run their entire country 100% renewable energy since the beginning of the year. Well, there's another piece to that story too, and that is the countries, the the electricity providers are going to drop rates 12% in the next year because their operating costs have dropped due to renewables. Yeah, they've been able to basically get around running their diesels, uh, which were killing them. Um, and so now that they're really able to do these 100% renewables, I think um, you know they're going to pass that along to customers. So EIA came out with some pretty interesting figures this week, and they showed that California is the first state to get 5% of its energy from utility-scale solar plants. And they track plants over one megawatt. Over one megawatt. They're not even counting the... Our, our count, we're over 300,000 residential and commercial systems in California that didn't even get tracked by EIA. So we are well over 5%. Uh, that is more than three times greater than the next highest state, uh, Arizona. So I remember when I came into this industry in, in early 2006 and started reporting on um, renewables and you know geothermal was pretty hot at that time. And you know the geothermal industry like to tout that it represented 5% of generation in California and had provided baseload power for many years. And now you look and just utility scale solar has overtaken geothermal and is catching up to wind, which is at about 8%. And this is one of those periodic benchmarks that remind you 
where the industry is headed and just how much has changed in the last nine or 10 years? Well, I think it's important to note that EIA doesn't have any data around the 300,000 systems, another place where EIA has failed. That's why we have GTM Research. Which they should pay you for that data and put it in their numbers. I'm just sick and tired of EIA <laughs> putting out crappy information as usual. All right, folks, time to wrap up the show at that. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate your listening every week. Big shout out to Keiko New Energy for sponsoring the show, and we are delighted to have their support, so thank you so much. If you want to go deeper on any of the topics that we discussed on the show, you can find links to resources at our podcast page, greentechmedia.com slash podcast. All of our back episodes are there uh, on our RSS feed and on the website. If you want to start mass downloading shows um, or send a link to someone who might be interested, go on over there or find us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud. Uh, And I will find you, Catherine, right here next week. Until then, enjoy your weekend. I, you won't because I'm on vacation. I'm taking two of my kids to Austin and San Antonio where I got to break the bad news about Daniel Boone dying at the Alamo. Oh, no. Yeah, it's always rough on the kids. Yeah, I bet. Well, it's going to be rough on us as well. I forgot. I should have checked my schedule. Yes, we will have uh, Shale Khan from GTM Research, our senior VP, joining us. And we're going to be talking about your favorite topic, Catherine, nuclear power. (laughs) It's one of those weeks that I'll be glad to be at the Alamo. (laughs) Well, Jigger, we'll be glad to have you there. Looking forward to it. Yeah, it's going to be great. And it's nice to see spring finally in the air. So hopefully all those Massachusetts solar projects will start start getting constructed. With Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, I am Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week.